Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. We're continuing a series we started several weeks ago uh, called Parabolic, where we're speaking through some of the parabolic teachings of Jesus, the parables that He told. And uh, I'm excited to continue that today. Hope it will be meaningful to you. And uh, if you're regular around here and uh, haven't got to hear the last couple of messages, I'd encourage you, you might want to go back because there's kind of a lot of teaching fundamental to understanding some of the parables we'll be talking about the next couple of months that we won't come back to. I'll touch a little bit on it today, but we're going to be moving on uh, in coming weeks. Um, So anyway... So glad you're here. Great to see you. So uh, I read a story this week about President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt being at a gala ball, and he was going around shaking hands and smiling his big smile and uttering whatever uh, innocuous inanities get uttered in those types of things. And uh, he noticed people really, they weren't listening. And uh, he kind of got tired of it all, and he started saying to the people he was greeting, I killed my grandmother this morning. And uh, uh, people would say things like, oh, that's wonderful, Mr. President. Uh, You're doing great, Mr. President. Keep up the good job. I killed my grandmother this morning. Keep up the good job, Mr. President. No one really paying attention Uh, even to what the president was saying, most people are really more interested in what they're saying than what someone else is saying. Except one one diplomat, uh, who of course has been trained to listen to the other person, who leaned over and whispered in President Roosevelt's ear, I'm sure she had it coming to her, sir. (laughs) So we've been teaching about how Jesus told parables so that he could reveal truth to those who were really listening to understand and conceal truth from those who were not. He wanted people to care about what he was saying and to want what he was offering. And to those people, he offered his very self and his kingdom. But to those who wouldn't pay attention and who were not really listening and uh, who did not truly want what he was offering, he did not offer himself or his kingdom past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the parable of the sower, which most uh, scholars say is the parable about the parables. It's the parable you have to understand to unlock the meaning to the other parables. And in this parable, Jesus said that those who preach the message of the kingdom of God are like a farmer who was scattering seed. In this case, the seed of the word of God. We spent a lot of time talking about what the Word of God means, and that some seed falls on unreceptive soil and doesn't grow or produce, and other seed falls on good soil and reproduces many times what was sown. The soil in this parable, of course, is the human heart. Some people receive the good news of the kingdom of God, and others, for various reasons, are unreceptive. Jesus taught that what makes good soil good soil, or receptive hearts receptive hearts, is simply the desire and effort to really see, hear, and understand what he is saying. And this is kind of where I abruptly left off 
in our 11 o'clock service last week. Jesus made this uh, parable, made, made this clear after telling the parable of the sower. In Mark's account, it's like this. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now we're going to talk a lot about that the next few minutes. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. He's quoting now from a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. So I want to remind us kind of wrap up where we've been and, and have a launching pad for what we're going to, the parable we're going to talk about today. I want to remind us that if we want to understand what Jesus taught about how life is really meant to be lived now and forever and to be empowered to actually live that life, we must truly see, hear, and understand in order to turn. So first of all, we have to see to perceive. Jesus said, these people hearing my parables, some of them are ever seeing but never perceiving. We talked uh, at some length about how science teaches that we only physically see what we focus on. That seeing is actually very difficult and that we must choose what to see. This is true in terms of our physicality, but this is true especially regarding our spirituality. Uh, scripture lets us know that our hearts have eyes. And in order for the eyes of our hearts to really perceive, we must decide what to focus on. The eyes of our hearts only perceive what we focus on. In other words, we have to try to see what it is Jesus is saying to us in general and specifically through the parables. I love the poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, her 1857 work, Aurora Lay. A couple of lines uh, stand out for me in this regard. She writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Only So the earth is full of God's glory, every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees recognizes the sacredness of the moment, takes their shoes off, the rest just... They're just plucking blackberries. In other words, you have to want to see it. You have to focus on it. You have to pay attention in order to see what it is that God is saying and doing. So we have to see to perceive, and then we have to listen to understand. Jesus said these people are hearing, but not understanding. Listening, as we know, all of us in relationships know, listening is hard work. In order to listen, we have to first pay attention. But not only do we have to pay attention, but we have to listen to hear not just the words being spoken, but we also have to hear what's being said beneath the words we're hearing. What is the friend who's speaking to me? I hear their words, but what is it that they're really trying to communicate to me? What's being said underneath the words? It's particularly important with our spouse, with our children. It's important with our employees and so on. It's especially important with God. When you hear someone teaching, as I am this week, 
Hopefully you're not just listening to the words I'm saying, but inside, spiritually, with the ears of your heart, you're listening. What is it that God's really saying, and what is it that God is saying to me? We're asking that question. There's a communication that's taking place on a spirit level that's beyond words. It's something that's happening in the interior of our lives. We have to listen with that part of ourselves. We have to listen with our hearts. And this is true when we're sitting there in, in the morning reading Scripture and having a devotional time. I'm reading the words, but what is God saying? What is God saying to me? This is true when you're commuting to work and God's speaking to you in all kinds of ways through the person you just met, through the, 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 the uh, interaction that you just had with someone. What is it perhaps that God's trying to say to me in this moment? You have to listen in order to understand uh, George Bernard Shaw in his play St. Joan about Joan of Arc tells the story of this peasant maid from a small village who claims to have heard God calling her to inspire the French in their fight against the English. Her audacity, her claim concerning this gets her summoned before King Charles VII who in front of the entire court, ask her how she has the audacity to, to say that she's heard God speaking to her. And as she's making her case, Charles interrupts her and says, Oh, your voices, your voices. Why don't the voices come to me? I am the king of France, not you. To which Joan of Arc replies, They do come to you, but you do not hear them. You have not sat in the field in the evening listening for them. When the angelus rings, you cross yourself and have done with it. But, you have, but if you have prayed from your heart and listened to the thrilling of the bells in the air after they stop ringing, you would hear the voices as I do. The reality is God is speaking to you. He's speaking through His Word and He's speaking through the words underneath His Word. But we have to listen to pay attention. I'm not talking about an audible voice. Don't be listening for that. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that can't happen. But that's not typically how God communicates with people. He communicates to us in the same place that we see from. He communicates to our hearts. That's where we hear the voice of God. As Richard Foster wrote, like the joyful awareness of a loved one whispering softly into our ears, we become aware of the intimately personal voice of God. We cannot pinpoint where it is coming from because suddenly it is within us, sounding with a heightened clarity and immediacy reverberating in the chambers of our heart. That's where we listen. We listen in our heart. And then Jesus said, they're seeing, but they don't perceive. They're hearing, but they don't understand. And then he says, if they would, they could turn and they could, Matthew's gospel says they could be healed. Mark's gospel here says that they would be forgiven. The bottom line is our relationship with God is made whole and God goes to work making us whole as people. But in order for that to happen, we have to turn. In the Greek language, which the, uh, is a language the New Testament was originally written in, of course, there, the word for um, hear is a word that also meant obey. The idea is if you really hear, 
If you really see, really hear, really understand, you'll turn. In other words, you'll take action in your life to do what it is that you know God is calling you to do. That's how you know that you've heard. Now what happens when these things are working together? You become good soil. You become a person in whom the, 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 the seed of the Word of God is planted. You become a person who begins to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. When we perceive, understand, and turn, God reveals his secrets to us more and more, which is after all what he really wants to do. He's not wanting to hide something from us. He's just saying, I want you to pay attention. And if you do, I'm going to, you're going to, more and more is going to happen. So he tells the parable of the soul soil. This is in Mark's gospel. Luke's follows exactly this pattern. Matthew's very closely he tells this parable about the good soil, and then he said to them, Mark 4.21, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone hears, has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, I don't want to hide this from you. I want you. If you just try, basically is what he's saying. If you'll just try to see, if you'll try to hear, if you'll try to understand, I want to disclose this wonderful truth about me and my kingdom to you in a way that you can live in this new dimension of life. And then he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. In other words, the more you put into this, the more you're going to get out of it. And then he offer, offers a line that I'll come back to at the end of today's message but I have talked about a little bit the last couple weeks. He says, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Again, I'll get into that later. But in brief, the more we see, hear, and turn, the more insight into life as God intended it we receive. And the more the responsibilities and privileges of the kingdom are are manifest in our lives. The less we see, hear, and turn, the more whatever understanding we may have dissipates. There's no neutral ground here. Either we're seeing and listening and understanding with our heart and turning, and the seed of the Word of God's planted in us, and it's growing, and it's a more and more thing, or we're not paying attention, we're not focused. Whatever we have had, we lose over time. So we need to pray and decide to be good soil because the seed of the word of God, which is, gives us insight into the kingdom and it's powerful. Now, when you're following this along in Luke, and I'm talking quickly because I ran out of time in the first service and I want to make sure I really get to the main point today. Okay. Everybody you doing okay. Doing all right. Uh, two people are doing fine. I'm happy. So in Mark's gospel, then, he then goes to the next parable. Jesus is on a roll here about the concept of seed being planted in the ground. And in coming weeks, Lord willing, we're going to get into some of the more commonly interesting parables. The particle son, the, 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 the good Samaritan, and so on. But Jesus begins the whole parabolic teaching by really focusing on, on the idea of seed being planted. That's what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and he follows that. He's on a roll here about seed. He follows it with another illustration of seed, and this is what he says. It's a brief parable. It's a similitude. It's Jesus saying, as he does in some of the parables, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
This is what the kingdom of God is like, he says. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. He being the guy that planted the seed. He doesn't know how it happens. He just knows that one day he planted seed, and one day he looks, and the seed's growing, and one day it's ripe and ready to be harvested. All by itself, the soil produces grain, verse 28. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. It's, on one hand, very simple. He plants seed in the ground. He goes about life. Over time, the seed grows up into something that can be harvested and is is what was inherent in the seed when it was planted in the first place. But Jesus frames this entire thing by saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He does this a lot, and he will show a different perspective, something different. These are secrets about the kingdom of God that if we see here and attempt to understand, we're going to understand more and more. And so uh, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Now let me just take a few minutes and talk about the kingdom of God. And the next few minutes is going to be a little bit like kind of having to eat our spinach. In order to have enough understanding here in a few minutes for the application of this in our lives to be meaningful, okay? So so let's just talk about the kingdom of God for a minute. What do, we, what do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God? This is an incredibly important subject. In fact, probably the most important subject in Scripture. Because this is what Jesus talked about more than anything else by far. A hundred times, more than a hundred times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels, call it the kingdom of God. They're all talking about the same thing. They're talking about the rule of God from heaven that has shown up in earth in the person of Jesus Christ. The first thing that Jesus says in Mark's gospel, uh, Matthew and, and, uh, um, Matthew and Luke begin the story of Jesus uh, pre-nativity. Mark begins it with John the Baptist saying, the kingdom of God is near, and he's pointing at Jesus. And then John disappears from the scene, and Jesus comes out, and the very first thing Jesus says is, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now what's the good news? The good news of the gospel is this. It's through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we can see and enter this new reality called the kingdom of God. It is a now reality, and it is a forever reality. Let me repeat that. The gospel is this. Sometimes people want to talk about the gospel only in terms of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But the question is, what is this getting us to? What it gets us to is that we're able to enter this new reality called the kingdom of God. When we believe the good news about Jesus, 
The seed of the Word of God is planted in us. It causes us to be born again. And in John chapter 3, Jesus said, when we're born again, we can see and enter the kingdom of God. The end game is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus brought. That's what Jesus is trying to bring us into. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. That's what Jesus wants us to understand how to live in. That's what Jesus wants us to be in partnering with him to bring to this planet. It's all about the kingdom of God. So the first thing Jesus says in in the gospel of Mark, ta-da, the kingdom of God is here. It's here now. It's here. Why is it here, Jesus? Because I brought it. I I brought it. And then over and over he talks about it. Here's how Dallas Willard translates Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus then came, the first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus then came into Galilee announcing the good news from God, the Gospel. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, Jesus said, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this new remarkable opportunity. I like that. It almost sounds like a commercial on television. You know, here here comes the commercial. Uh, I have good news from God. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. And it's not only new, it's free. All right? Now, I realize, especially if you're new to this kingdom of God discussion, that this may sound like esoteric irrelatable irrelevance. But the fact is, once you get this, you come to understand this is everything It is not irrelevant. Our engagement with the kingdom of God allows us to understand and live life as God intended it. This is everything about life, guys. This is everything. You get this right, everything else in your life will be gotten right. What did Jesus say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. If you get this, you get everything else, okay? This is huge. This is what happens when the seed is planted in good soil Now, secrets to the kingdom of God and how to live in this new reality are ours more and more. So the kingdom speaks of God's rule. When the kingdom of God is in us, and when we're in the kingdom of God, God's rule is coming into our life. Now, for those of you who heard me teach for 30 years, forgive me, you're going to hear me say this, some of this for the hundredth time. I'm about to move on, but there are other people who've never ever heard me or anyone, uh, more importantly, teach about this. So let me just explain uh, to me the two things that I think about when I think about what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes into our life in concept. I think, first of all, about the messianic prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his kingdom... There will be no end, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The Messiah, Jesus, brought the kingdom of God. And when his kingdom increases, his kingdom or his government increases, and at the same time, his peace increases. The word peace in that passage comes from the Hebrew word shalom, and shalom speaks of the harmonious working together of everything the way God planned it to work. In other words, it is life as it was meant to be. 
Okay? When we think about peace in the English language, we think about the absence of conflict. I made peace with someone. I'm not, I was going to hit him. Now I'm not going to hit him. All right? I made peace with him. But that's the biblical idea is something much, much bigger than that. Shalom has to do with everything working the way it's supposed to work. Guys, when we look around at our world right now and we look at a lot of things in our lives, if we're frank, and we'll talk about why this is true in a moment, there are a lot of things that aren't, we know that if God was making, working all this out the way he wanted it to work out in this earthly situation, what we're seeing, it wouldn't be what's happening, right? But as his government increases, his shalom increases. So we see that manifest in our life in every imaginable way. What would it look like for everything in your life to be working harmoniously together the way God planned for it? What would that look like? And the second thing I think about, and I taught about this a little bit Friday night at our believers meeting because we were talking through the Lord's Prayer, is where Jesus said, when you pray, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like when the rule of God comes into a situation? God's will is done in an earthly situation as he wants it to be done in heaven. And there is a human uh, engagement that's necessary in order for that to happen. Jesus said, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which would cause us to say, well, why then would I have to ask for it? Well, you have to ask for it because there's another power trying to keep the kingdom from coming. And therefore, Jesus would say something like this, from Matthew 11, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There's a, there's a component to this that's a spiritual warfare reality where we are praying and bringing the rule of God into earthly situations, and we're doing it sometimes against opposition opposition and resistance. And this is the, I'll teach about this Lord willing next week. This is the state of things on the planet. God allows it to be this way because he wants us participating in the bringing of his kingdom. He wants us seeing, he wants us hearing, he wants us understanding, he wants us turning, he wants us praying, he wants us asking, he wants us preaching, he wants us living as his witnesses. All right, I got off track there, but here's what happens when the kingdom of God comes. Shalom increases, and the more the kingdom comes, the more shalom increases, and the more the kingdom comes, the more God's will is being done in earthly situations as it is in heaven. When you apply this to your life, you understand that when the kingdom comes, you have uh, uh, you you move from disorder to order, you move from ugliness to beauty, you move from injustice to justice, you move from from from. Uh, chaos and conflict in relationships to peace in relationships. You move to finances where there aren't any to God's blessings on your finances. As the kingdom of God comes, everything in your life looks more and more like God wants it to look. But what this parable teaches us, so what are we talking about? Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It seemed like I needed to define the kingdom of God before I then talked about what it's like. This parable teaches us that the kingdom of God begins as a seed, something small and invisible, and that it grows into its potential as God causes it to grow. It starts as something small and invisible. Most of us, all of us, I think, could justifiably say, if the kingdom of God is so awesome, why is blank like this in my life now? 
And part of how, or why is blank like this in our world now? And part of the answer to that is that this kingdom of God is a seed that's planted that at first is invisible, and you don't see what's happening in the germination process of the seed. It starts as something that you cannot see, but it's there nonetheless. This is true concerning the kingdom of heaven brought to earth by Jesus, and it's true concerning the seed of the kingdom being planted in each of us. So here Jesus is. And, and now let's get real specific to the context in which he's saying this. Here Jesus is announcing that he's brought the kingdom of God to this planet. Be, at the beginning, when he first announced it, he didn't have one follower. Ta-da! The kingdom of God is here. I brought it. Now, now he has a few followers. He has 12, and then there are crowds that are, you know, like crowds do, coming and going, vacillating up and down. And here he is saying he's bringing the kingdom of God. And you can understand people saying, and he's saying it against the backdrop of the mightiest kingdom that had ever been known to humanity. Here he is standing there, this carpenter, now turned rabbi, saying that he's brought the kingdom of God to the planet, and here the Roman Empire is dominating the world. How in the world can that possibly be true? You can imagine his disciples saying, this is it? This is the us, the, us 12? This is the kingdom of God? Where's your throne? Where's your castle? Where are your armies? Hey, when are we overthrowing Rome? And we're going to need more people. And he's saying a couple of things. First of all, he's saying that the kingdom of God is bigger than Rome or any other kingdom in this world, and it's going to start small and invisible, but over time, it's going to grow into the largest and most powerful force in the world. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God is like seed planted in the ground. You cannot see it. This is encapsulated. In Acts chapter 1, when uh, he's at the end of his ministry, he's, he's, uh, he's about to ascend to heaven. I think this is Ascension Day, actually. And we're told by Luke that in, in Acts that after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about, guess what? What he always spoke about, the kingdom of God. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time? Are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, now they know he can. They saw him die, and now they see him standing there. They know he entered death, defeated death. So now they're no longer questioning his ability to restore the kingdom. And he says, now, now, is this the time that's going to happen? Is this the time now? In other words, what they're saying is, are we going to now march on Jerusalem or march in where we're at in Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans and set up your kingdom now? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He says, you're not understanding the nature of the kingdom. My kingdom is bigger than Rome. But it's not going to look like it to you because the kingdom is going to be planted in you by the Holy Spirit, but with it is going to come power and that seed is going to grow into the biggest thing the world has ever seen. You know, this idea of overthrowing Rome is really important, guys. In fact, this would be good for us to be reminded of. 
to remember that the kingdom of God is way bigger than any earthly kingdom. And the kingdom of God was so much bigger than Rome. It was difficult for those people to get. You, you can understand they're being dominated. Most of the world's being dominated by Rome. But Jesus said, I got, look guys, please understand. I got something a whole lot bigger than Rome going on here, okay? I'm talking about a kingdom. I know you don't see much now, but it's going to be the biggest thing ever and it's going to last forever. And it's going to reconnect us to God's purposes. Rome, Jesus wants to save Romans. He doesn't want to overthrow. He's just been killed by Roman soldiers. But he doesn't want to overthrow Rome. In fact, the first non-Jewish follower of Jesus we're aware of in Scripture was a Roman centurion. Jesus isn't interested in overthrowing Rome. He's interested in saving Roman centurions. I wish some of us could get that kind of perspective, by the way, in the realities and the politics that are going on in our world today and our nation today to understand whatever it is that you're concerned about when you're reading the paper in the morning. Just know Jesus is up to something bigger. And what he's up to has to do with the fact that he planted his spirit in you, that you have been given power to be his witness and that you are participating in bringing the kingdom of God to this planet. And so just remember, it's bigger. It's, it's bigger than any earthly kingdom. It's bigger than any nation. It's bigger than any political party, any political personality, kings, presidents, former presidents. The kingdom of God is bigger than all of that. And our first allegiance must be to his kingdom. Think about anything you care about in the world today. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. And our focus has to first and foremost be on the kingdom of God. Does that mean that that doesn't get manifest in in our world in all kinds of ways? It does. But the first thing is the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God that's planted in in human hearts. And so I I like what um, Douglas Sean O'Donnell says in his commentary on Matthew, he, he says concerning Jesus saying the kingdom of God's like a seed that's planted. At first you can't see it, it doesn't look like much. You know, the, you know 12 guys, Roman Empire, whatever. He's, but, 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 but he says Jesus has been remarkably accurate, hasn't he? The Roman Empire no longer exists. It hasn't existed for over 1,500 years. But the kingdom of heaven, that little seed Jesus planted in Galilee two millennia ago, has grown into the biggest, longest living kingdom in history. The Egyptian Empire, gone. The Assyrian Empire, gone. The Babylonian Empire, gone. The Aztec Empire, gone. The Ottoman Empire, gone. The Mongol Empire, gone. The Roman Empire, gone. Christianity has beat them all by persisting for 2,000 years and counting. That seed planted 2,000 years ago has grown into billions, billions of people. It's just us 12. This parable also teaches that the kingdom grows sometimes unseen over the course of time. It's not a magic wand, Shazam. It's all finished thing. The nature of the kingdom is it grows. Mark 4.27, Jesus said, Night and day, whether he, the guy that plants the seed, sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Now this doesn't convey 
passivity on the part of what we presume is a farmer. We should assume that this man is doing the sorts of things a farmer does in order to have a successful harvest. He's sleeping and rising, and his, his sleeping and rising and night and day has to do with the passage of time. The kingdom of God, one other kind of technical thing, and, and, and I'll start moving towards some level of application here. One other kind of technical thing is the kingdom of God. And I think this is really helpful as we look at present circumstance in relationship to what the word of God says to be true. The kingdom of God is best understood as definite, progressive, and final. Meaning that the kingdom of God definitely came through Jesus. Not a question of whether or not the kingdom came, it came. But we also can say that the kingdom of God is coming. It's progressive. It's now growing in us, and through us it's growing in the world. The kingdom came, and it's coming. It's progressive. It's been coming for 2,000 years. And the kingdom will come. The second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, the beginning of the new age, heaven merges with earth, and everything promised in Scripture is fully realized in the world of spirit and the world of the material, and the kingdom of God manifests physically, and we now reign with Him as kings and priests in that kingdom forever. But, but just because it hasn't fully come, don't think it didn't come. Just because it hasn't fully come, don't think it isn't coming. I say that to encourage some of us who are saying, what? What? Wait. No, it's in you, it's growing in you, and there is an inevitability to this. We may not see the effects of the kingdom in our world to the extent that we'd like, but it is growing as surely as the seed of the kingdom has been growing since Jesus brought it to this planet. You may not see it in your life to the extent that you know God's word promises, but the point is, it's growing. It starts small and invisible, but over time, that's the part we don't like. We are impatient while the seed is in the ground. We're stomping on the ground saying, grow seed, grow! But just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. See, the seed has in itself everything needed to reach its full potential. God will cause it to grow. Mark 4, 28, Jesus said, All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Our job is to focus on being good soil. And when we do, there is an inevitability to what's happening with the seed. Whatever the man is or isn't doing in this parable, the seed is still growing. God is working in your life whether you see it or not. The kingdom is working in your life whether you see it or not. There is an inevitability to this. That word there, that phrase that says that the, that the, that the soil produces all by itself. That phrase comes from the Greek word that we get our English word automatic from. It's automatically happening all by itself. Guys, as you sit right here on this seat on this Sunday morning in West Orange, New Jersey, you don't see it, but the seed of the kingdom of God is automatically growing in you. And if you'll just hang in here and keep paying attention, the time will come when you'll look at certain areas of your life and say, when you see some marvelous thing align itself with God's kingdom, what happened here? Well, the kingdom just reached its full growth in that particular area, and all of a sudden, shalom. All of a sudden, the will of God is being done in you as he planned for it to be done in heaven. Now, there are a lot of things that can be said about that, but I'll, I'll leave you with a couple. 
Doesn't mean I'm finished, but I'm headed that direction right now. First, to sum up, despite what we may or may not see happening in the world around us, the kingdom is here and it's growing. We see it in part, but there's a lot going on that we do not see. Don't be discouraged. God is at work. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No doubt. Second, I want you to know that something powerful is going on in you. This is what I want to focus on now. God is at work in you. There is an inevitability to the kingdom work in your life. God is working everything for your good. I want you to be confident in this, whether you see it or not. At the same time, I want you to know that you will see it. All of a sudden, you'll see the effects of the kingdom in your health, on your family, on your business, on your finances. What happened here? The kingdom of God is like a seed planet. It had everything in it 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 needed. I didn't see it, but over time it grew into this. So, over my break uh, this past few months, I read a lot of stuff. One of the things I read is, uh, uh, for the first time I've ever really uh, uh, paid very much attention to this person, uh, I began to read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Just out of curiosity, how many are familiar with Jordan Peterson? Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to encourage definitely to the men in the room, but to everyone, uh, uh, I, I would encourage you to read it. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist, professor at Harvard and the University of Toronto. The New York Times says that Peterson, who, and the New York Times would frankly disagree with Peterson about a lot of things. The New York Times says that Peterson nonetheless is the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now. So from what I read and see, he, he's very, Peterson's very open to Jesus, if not now a believer. And I, I don't agree when you read or listen to his evidently, like one of the most popular podcasts in the world, evidently. When you hear him, don't think I agree or subscribe to everything he says. I don't. He's writing this book not uh, from a Christian perspective. He's writing this as a, as a um, secular thinker and, again, probably the most important thinker in the world today. And I do find a lot of what he says very interesting and insightful, including this. Now, I'm seeing something in what I'm about to say that frankly I don't completely understand, but I know there's something here that somehow is important and I wanted you to leave you with this. It's going to take me a minute to develop this, okay? Hang in with me. This is the last uh, thing I'm going to talk about, but I will take a minute with it. Peterson makes the case that in nature there are winners and losers, and that the winners continue to accumulate more, and the losers continue to find themselves with less. He's not saying that's good. He's saying that just is. That, in fact, is what happens in nature. And he applies this principle to human societies and makes the case further that in every human society there have been a relatively small percentage of people who, quote, win, end quote, And that those people have an inordinate amount of power, resources, opportunities, and so on. Again, he's not saying that's good. He's just saying this has always been true. As they studied this, this has always been true. So here's part of what he writes. And and I think you'll see why this piqued my interest. He said, it's winner take all in nature, just as it is in human societies, where the top 1% have as much loot as the bottom 50%. And where the richest 85 people have as much as the bottom three and a half billion. 
That same brutal principle of unequal distribution. Again, he's saying this is brutal and it's unequal. And, but he's just saying, this is what the science says. Applies outside of the financial domain. And he takes about two pages showing how this gets worked out in all kinds of ways. He closes that part of the argument by saying, and it appears true for every society ever studied, regardless of governmental form. It also applies to the population of cities, a very small number have almost all the people, the mass of heavenly bodies, a very small number hoard all the matter, and the frequency of words in a language, 90% of communication occurs using just 500 words, among many other things. Sometimes it is known as the Matthew principle, this secular philosopher says, who I think probably has become a believer from what I've read. Sometimes it is known as the Matthew principle, parentheses, Matthew 25, 29 in parentheses, derived from what might be the harshest statement ever attributed to Christ. And now he's going to quote from what I read at the very beginning of this sermon where Jesus is explaining what happens when the secrets of the kingdom of God are coming to you more and more. Jesus said, to those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken. Who said that? Jesus said that. I had somebody stop me in the lobby last week saying, basically, I can't believe Jesus said that. Well, he didn't just, what, what, what is it? Matthew, Peterson calls it the Matthew principle, or I guess it's commonly called that. I never actually heard it. This whole idea that those who have more get more and those who have less end up with less. He calls it the Matthew principle, quotes Jesus, to those who have everything more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken. This is not a small idea. This is a huge idea because it is one of the ways that we understand the kingdom of God. Five times in the Gospels, Jesus utters those words. Every time it's uttered in relationship to the kingdom of God, where those who have it get more of it, and those who don't have less of it. And in particular, in the Matthew passage, in the Matthew passage, it's where Jesus is telling the story. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He said, it's like a guy who has a lot of money, and he has people working for him, and he leaves. But before he leaves, he calls three of his employees, and he gives one of them five bags of gold. He says, invest this while I'm gone. Another one, he gives two bags of gold. He says, invest this while I'm gone. Another one, gives one bag of gold. He says, invest it while I'm gone. Everybody knows the story. And you know that the guy who had five took five, invested it, made ten. The guy who had two took two, made four. The guy who had one said, this guy's a really difficult boss. I'm afraid what's going to happen if I lose his money. And he took it, and he hid it under his bed. And the master comes back, and the master says, show me the money. And, and, and the first guy says, I've made 10 out of the five. And, and the master says, whoo, this is fantastic. Uh, 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 well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, you've been faithful over little. I'm going to make you ruler over much. Come and share in your master's happiness. And the guy who took two and made four, Jesus says again, you know, he's talking about himself clearly. He says, that's great. This is fantastic. And the guy who took one and didn't do anything, he didn't lose it. He just didn't do anything with it. He, he didn't make more of it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you poor guy. I feel so sorry for you. I'm going to give you a promotion anyway. This is participation trophies. We're going to give them out here. He doesn't. In fact, he takes from the guy who didn't do anything with what he had, and he gives it to the person who already had 10. And then he says, Matthew 25, 29, for whoever has will be given more. 
and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This principle is always mentioned in the context of the seed of the kingdom being planted, being, or in this case, being offered to someone. It's supposed to grow. It's always mentioned in the context of the seed of the kingdom and the inside of the kingdom that Jesus promised those who would see, hear, and understand. And this is what this has all caused me to think about then and attempt to articulate. Those of us who are good soil, take a breath before I say this because I want to make sure we hear this. Those of us who are good soil or who have receptive hearts, and in whom the seed of the kingdom has been planted are those, according to the teachings of Jesus, who continue to be given more, doesn't mean more money, that could be a byproduct of it, I suppose, but more of what's really important in life, meaning that we are life's winners. They looked at me funny when I said that at nine o'clock too, if it makes you feel any better. We are the ones who've been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, the more you get of this, the more you'll have of it. The less you get of this, the less you'll have of it, which means we're the ones who are constantly being, it's being taken from the one who doesn't want it, and it's been given to those of us who do want it, which means that we are absolutely at the top of the food chain. Now, that may not mean that we're at the top of society's food chain, at least not now. But we are part of the kingdom that will never end, and that kingdom is in us now. It may just be a seed that you can't see, but it's growing. And see, part of the reality of the kingdom of God is power. Not worldly power, perhaps, at least not in every case. Something more than that. Something more important to that. What did Jesus say when they said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? He said, no, let's not talk about that. That's a small thing. I'm going to do this, though. I'm going to, I'm going to give you power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I want you to think about this for a second, guys. I want you to think about what it is like to look at yourself as a person with incredible power. Now, as followers of Jesus, of course, we use power to serve. We use power to be witnesses. We use power to live God's way. We live power to do God's work. We use power to make a positive difference in this world. But here's my concern. My concern is too many of us live like the person who always has less instead of the person who sees themselves as always having more. That too many of us live like we think we're losers. That we're the one being left out in this world when in fact, we're the people who, because we have the kingdom of God, really have what's important in this world. You are not a loser. You are not a victim. You will not be defeated. Your enemies will not win. As the old covenant says, you're the head, not the tail. You have insight into God's kingdom. And whatever you have, more is coming to you. It's like seed growing in you automatically. You can't even help it. It's just happening. And so Peterson says, and I'm finished. He says, the optimistic lesson, and forgive me. Somebody told me after the first service, please don't apologize for getting 
excited. I'm, I don't typically raise my voice to this level this much, but I got too much rest this summer or something and uh, pretty fired up today. So, so don't encourage me. I don't need the encouragement. My, my wife won't come and listen to me preach anymore. So, uh, Peterson says, the optimistic lesson of the Matthew principle is that those who start to have will probably get more. Alterations in body language offer an important example. And this is one way he talks about it. In other words, he's saying, you should act like you're one of the people who's getting more. This is how you should act. So he says, talks about body language in several ways, including this. He says, if your posture is poor, for example, if you slump shoulders forward and rounded, chest tucked in, head down, looking small, defeated, and ineffectual, then you will feel small, defeated, and ineffectual. The reactions of others will amplify that. Listen, I haven't been on this case for a long time, but the whole idea that we're a bunch of poor little Christians... We're just a bunch of poor little Christians. And we can just hang in here till Jesus comes back. Hold the fort, freeze. We, we're just going to, we're just, oh, poor us. The world's so big and bad, and they're so mean, and everybody's it's so difficult to survive. And, oh, I'm just, we, 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 too many followers of Jesus see themselves as losers. Here Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is in you, and you're standing here saying, wait a minute, there are only 12 of us. But Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. There's a dimension happening in you that you don't see right now there's a seed in you that's been planted and it is growing so so we're not walking around we're walking in humble confidence we're walking with faith in jesus now most of the time i'm going to be up here emphasizing humility but today Let's just let's know how important that is. But there is a humble confidence that has an awareness. Not that you're so great, but the one you're serving is so great and his power is in you. If you present yourself as defeated, then people will react to you as if you were losing. If you start to straighten up, then people will look at and treat you differently. Standing up physically also implies and invokes and demands standing up metaphysically. Peterson's writing this. Standing up means voluntarily accepting the burden of being. Your nervous system responds in an entirely different manner when you face the demands of life voluntarily. You respond to a challenge instead of bracing for a catastrophe. To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. It means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential under the realities of habitable order. It means willingly undertaking the sacrifices necessary to generate a productive and meaningful reality. It means acting to please God in the ancient language. Thus strengthened, you may be able to stand even during the illness of a loved one, even during the death of a parent, and a Allow others to find strength alongside you when they would otherwise be overwhelmed with despair. Thus emboldened, you will embark on the voyage of your life. Yet let your light shine, so to speak, on the heavenly hill and pursue your rightful destiny. Stand up straight with your shoulders back, writes Peterson. And I hear the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand 
against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to... What? Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. And then what do you do? Stand firm then. My message to you today as a kingdom person is to stand up. My message is to square your shoulders and lift your head and go out in this world like a person of faith. kingdom of God is in you. 